1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of New Books and Political Science. I'm your host, Joe Renoir. My guest today is Dr. Adam Hilton, who is Assistant Professor of Politics at Mount Holyoke College. We'll discuss his new book, which is titled True Blues, The Contentious Transformation of the Democratic Party, published by the University of Pennsylvania Press in 2021. Dr. Hilton, thank you for joining us.
2: Thank you so much for having me, Joe.
1: Before we get to your new book, tell us a bit about your background and your interests, and what interested you in this subject.
2: Yeah, well, this book uh, grew out of a uh, dissertation uh, I completed uh, under the supervision of the late great uh, Leo Panitch uh, in Toronto uh, at a moment when the it was sort of midway through the Obama presidency. The um, the enthusiasm that had uh, greeted the outset of that presidency, the enthusiasm for change, the promise of a post-partisan politics, that enthusiasm was certainly on the wane uh, by then. Uh, and so I was interested in thinking about the possibilities and challenges facing uh, progressives in and around the Democratic Party, uh, especially in the face of a uh, rising uh, Republican conservatism. And that drew me to examine uh the struggles within the Democratic Party uh, at the end of the New Deal era, uh, in the late 1960s, early 1970s, a period of uh, great upheaval uh, in society and uh, in the party system uh, as a whole. And I really wanted to use that political history to dig into kind of the big, meaty questions about uh, what parties are, uh, how and why parties change over time. Uh, and then, as I was completing uh, my graduate work, uh, Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump burst onto the scene, uh, underscoring uh, kind of for me that uh, this was, you know, not only an important phenomenon uh, worth studying uh, because it was occurring out in the real world, um, but that political scientists who who nearly unanimously expressed surprise uh, at, at both the success at the success of both those insurgencies. Um, that they really lacked adequate explanations for that success. Um, and uh, and so I set about uh, uh, revising the dissertation, as uh, so many of us do uh, in the early parts of our career, uh, into uh, the book that is now True blues.
1: Great. Well, I, you know you're not alone in being inspired by the the unusual political events of the last decade. And I, you know we have so much to talk about with this book. I'll say at the outset, I, I really enjoyed it. This is a great work of a political history that also brings us up to the present. And it would interest a lot of our readers for both of those reasons. But uh, your central question, who governs political parties, is very relevant to us. And it seems to me you're entering into longstanding arguments about party evolution, the American political development tradition, APD. And, uh, you know, you alluded to this a moment ago, but lay out the central argument and what's new about your work and what have other scholars missed or what are you building on that they have laid out for us?
2: Yeah. The, the book, uh, as you mentioned, uh, sets out with asking, you know, one of those, the great Robert Dahl kind of fundamental question about politics, who governs, but it applies that question, uh, to parties. And as you also rightly point out, political scientists have in their own way, been arguing, um, about who governs parties, uh for for many decades um there's kind of been two ways to, if we we're going to paint with some broad brush strokes some there are about two ways of answering uh, that question one tradition stretches you know back to the work of Uh, economists like Joseph Schumpeter in the 1940s, uh, uh, Anthony Downs in the 1950s, uh, but continuing right up to the present uh, through the work of uh, folks like uh, John Aldrich. Um, And they see parties as creatures of politicians. Um, Politicians in government uh, need to create parties uh, to resolve the collective action problems that legislators uh, face in conducting log rolls and reducing transaction costs and, uh, and of course winning re-election um, you know party activists other secondary players um, might have an important role to play um, but it's it's uh, politicians uh, for these researchers who are in the driver's seat if you will Um, More recently, another tradition has emerged uh, that sees parties as uh, creatures of groups in society, uh, specifically what what those who we could call the UCLA school uh, refer to as intense policy demanders. Uh, But you could even go back to some of the work stemming out of the um, Marxist tradition uh, that sees parties as as reflections of classes uh, uh, or, or other groups in society. Um, and uh, for these researchers, it's groups that are the principles of party action, and it's uh, politicians that are their agents. Uh, so in my book, uh, I depart from both these schools and theorize parties to be what I call contentious institutions. Uh, that is because political parties are intermediary institutions. They, they bridge that divide uh, between uh, the state and civil society um, parties, they necessarily encompass within them, both politicians and groups. Uh, for me, neither, uh, can be excluded from the picture. Parties are simultaneously creatures of politicians and government and agents of groups in society. So for me, what previous researchers have missed is that this dual nature of parties, uh, being simultaneously having one foot in the state and one foot in society, uh, makes the exact location of party authority inherently ambiguous. Uh, both politicians, uh, and groups can and do lay claim to be the true and authentic voice in party affairs. Uh, so, uh, in fact, I argue, um, Uh, The question of who governs parties is a question whose answer is perpetually unsettled. Uh, And this creates a dynamic tension between groups and politicians that's at the center of um, party politics. So uh, turning from theory to uh, the empirical side of the book uh, and and the historical argument, Uh, I use this contentious institutions framework to uh, trace the evolution of the Democratic Party since the late 1960s, uh, looking at it as a series of recurrent bouts of contentious struggle between office holders and groups, reformers and counter reformers, social movements and presidents and on and on. Um, And I argue that the outcome uh, of, of this long period of struggle was a novel configuration of the Democratic Party uh, what I call an advocacy party. Uh, and what I mean by that is, is, uh, the democratic party has become increasingly dependent on, uh, a broad category that, that I just label advocates, but by which I mean, uh, advocacy organizations, uh, uh, uh public interest groups, uh, uh more traditional, uh, uh, interest groups, social movement activists, And what these folks do is they sort of compensate for the party's uh, internal uh, incapacity in terms of its organization. Um, They help build an electorally viable uh, coalition. And perhaps most importantly in this age where um, representative institutions uh, poll uh, so low in public opinion, uh, these movements these advocates these groups they lend the party legitimacy um, that is people often vote democratic or uh, or, or support the party uh, or a candidate because of the causes that uh, that candidate or the party as a whole um, are able to associate
1: uh, with well it's a it's a very important point I mean you've raised the the, the argument that you're entering into debates over party, power, party control in our in our country, in our duopoly. And that's, that's a more broadly uh, applicable set of arguments. But your focus is the Democratic Party. And I do have to ask you this um, uh, a scholarly literature question. Why has there been so much more of an interest in the GOP evolution and so much less on the Democratic Party?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. And it was one that that I was well aware of going into into a study of this kind of the you know the literature that you could pile up. Uh, you know, next, if you piled one book after another about the evolution of the GOP and its its relationship with conservatism, say, since you know the Second World War, um, you know, it would it would go nearly to the moon. And of course, I'm exaggerating, but there is a lot, a lot of literature and fascination with uh, with the evolution and the changes, and arguably what now many folks are calling, uh, the radicalization of the Republican party, uh, over the last several generations. And, you know, Joe rightly, so, uh, the Republican party development has been perhaps the most important change in American politics. Um, uh, in, uh, in the last 30 or so years, uh, of course, with roots extending, um, deeper into history than that. Uh, and as a lot of the literature about democratic backsliding is reflecting, uh, this development has ominous, um, uh, raises ominous or, or portends ominous, uh, a few, an ominous future for American politics. And so there, we have a good reason to be really concerned with figuring out what's going on in the Republican Party. That said, uh, things have not been static on the other side of the aisle. And uh, in addition to there just simply being a dearth of monographic studies about the evolution of the Democratic Party um, since uh, the, uh, you know, since the 1960s, uh, it occurred to me that uh, there had been actually really profound transformations on the Democratic side that that I wanted to better understand uh, and that. Uh, I think we're at a moment now, in, you know, within the first few years of the Biden administration, uh, that actually a lot of those transformations that, that went unobserved or overlooked over the past uh, 30 or so years are manifesting themselves in pretty dramatic ways now. Uh, so I think uh, in addition to just trying to, if you will, rebalance the scholarly interest in America's two parties uh, in a modest way. Uh, one intention with the book was to, you know, explain well why was Bernie Sanders, why was that insurgency so surprising? You know, not and not that not that he won, but in the traction it seemed to grab. Um, how do we explain Joe Biden's fairly surprising embrace of a bold progressive policy agenda, uh, despite having razor thin majorities uh, in Congress? I think I think this book can help us understand those kinds of transformations that they're not the same as what's going on across the aisle, um, but that doesn't make them any less profound.
1: Well, Adam, take us back and lay out a bit of the, the political history background for our listeners. You set up the, the party structure of the New Deal order era, something with which a lot of our listeners would already be familiar, but you you stressed that there is a, a, a turning point that it has gotten some attention, but perhaps deserves a lot more attention. That's the nineteen sixty-eight to seventy-two era that looms very large in in your book, in which the I guess you might say the Democratic Party <laughs> had book-ended disasters: the sixty-eight uh, convention and election, and the seventy-two election. So, take us back a little bit. Talk uh, in in as much detail as you'd like about the the party structure of the New Deal Order era, and then how everything begins to change between. 1968. And let's just say the immediate aftermath of the 72 election. Mm -hmm.
2: Well, as, as, uh, as Joe, I'm sure, you know, and and many of your listeners know, um, the new deal coalition inside the democratic party, um, was a strange one. (laughs) Uh, despite, uh, of course, making profound transformations in, uh, the constitutional order, uh, the political order and, and, and major changes to, um, Uh, labor relations, the American welfare state, and so on, Um, this was a coalition of pretty strange bedfellows uh, combining um, what other folks have have described in detail. um, Some of the most progressive elements uh, of American society, uh, labor liberals uh, often in the North, um, uh, the beginnings of uh, the racial realignment, African-American voters beginning to move into uh, 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 the party of Roosevelt rather than the party of Lincoln. Um, but on the other hand, this party uh, had its historical home in the Jim Crow South, uh, right? And the, uh, the anti-union uh, racially conservative block uh, of uh, Southern conservatives uh, who not only had a lock on most of those Southern states, but by way of having a lock on those Southern states, Uh, had uh, enormous amounts of leverage uh, within uh, Congress on congressional committees within the Senate through the exercise of uh, the filibuster and other forms of agenda control. Um, And, you know, one, as my students usually ask me when I begin to describe a, a party coalition of such strange bedfellows, they ask, how on earth was this even possible? And One of the overlooked elements um, in uh, existing literature uh, on on the New Deal coalition was the role that the party structure actually played in reproducing such a strange bedfellow coalition. More precisely, um, the decentralized or confederal nature of the Democratic Party, where the party was less of a national organization, uh, that, that we think about today and much more of a confederation of 50 different state parties, um, uh, that structure and its decentralization operated, uh, or worked to reproduce this coalition, um, without bringing these two mostly diametrically opposed wings into full scale confrontation with each other. Um. So that, uh, and, and we saw, we saw the, how should I say it? We saw some of the tectonic stresses uh, within this coalition at, at various points throughout the New Deal period. Um, the famous uh, 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 1948 um, convention, uh, Democratic National Convention in Philadelphia, uh, that after Hubert Humphrey a uh, uh, walks up to the podium and gives his barn burner of a uh, speech in favor of a strong civil rights plank. That's thrown into the platform by a majority vote. Some of the southern delegation walks out, right, and starts the uh, states' rights Dixiecrat party. Tries to sink Truman's re-election campaign. Uh, we saw it again in uh, a few decades later, the 1964 Atlantic City. Um, Democratic National Convention, when the Mississippi Freedom Delegates show up uh, from Mississippi, uh, a a racially integrated delegation uh, that defies the National Committee to reconcile uh, Lyndon Johnson's commitment to civil rights. He had just passed the 1964, just signed into law, the 1964 Civil Rights Act. And yet uh, Southern delegations from those states were still excluding African Americans from participation. Uh, And so these were, these were unreconciled contradictions brewing within the New Deal coalition really, you know, from the start, 1935, 1937, but the decentralized structure of the democratic party where the national committee, the national institutions really had no capacity to impose a unified platform on all, you know, delegations on all states, on all state parties, on all state committees, on, on their county committees and so on. Uh, the decentralization is really what allowed or facilitated, um, such a strange bedfellows, uh, coalition. But by the sixties, as these examples begin to intimate, um, labor, labor liberals, uh, uh, racial liberals, uh, the civil rights movements themselves began pushing on those decentralized mechanisms and attempting to break them or, or push them trying to ripen those contradictions to a point, um, where the democratic party as an institution would have to take a position on trying to reconcile its commitment. It's the, what the national platforms would say, right. And what the party was able to actually enact, um, uh, uh, when it, it through Congress. Um, so, Fast forward to 1968 and we have, uh, as, as you put it, the first bookend uh, of this major crisis, the simultaneous insurgency of uh, the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement, kind of domestic policy and foreign policy. Uh, those dimensions of the New Deal order, Great Society order were unraveling uh, rather quickly. Uh, and this is sort of engulfs the 1968 Chicago Convention into extreme controversy. Added on top of that, the insurgencies of Eugene McCarthy, Robert Kennedy, who was assassinated just shortly before the Chicago uh, uh, Convention. And you have what I call in the book, a full-scale party crisis. Uh, Lyndon Johnson withdraws from the, the the race. Hubert Humphrey is nominated without contesting a single primary uh, and goes on to lose to Richard Nixon um, in in that space, in that moment of crisis, um, I, I theorize a bit in the book and, and show empirically how a fairly small group of what I call party entrepreneurs um, were able to seize on that party crisis to diagnose what was ailing the party uh, as, uh, as uh, a lack of democratic accountability uh, over the leadership, a lack of representation within the party. And upon that diagnosis, uh, promulgate a set of reforms uh, that would dramatically uh, transform the party structure. uh, And they promised lead back to victory, um, resolve the crisis and restore the post-war majority party to its majority status, they argued. Um, Given the scale of the crisis, given the unpopularity of the uh, Vietnam War, given the uh, successes of the civil rights movement, most opponents of reform in that period of 1968, uh, in that period of party crisis and right after it, did not have good arguments as to why these reforms were inappropriate. Um, They were fairly uncontroversial modernizing reforms, like maybe... You know, when you select delegates for the nominating convention, uh, it would be nice to know, uh, what candidate they supported, uh, before the public was able to, uh, vote for them through a primary or a, or a caucus. Uh, it would be good to know the times and the meeting places of, uh, of state party or county party, uh, uh, conventions, um. Upon that, they also had more aggressive recommendations, like affirmative action for uh, uh, people of color, women, and people under 30 years old—three uh, groups that were conspicuously absent from most uh, uh, previous uh, conventions. Uh, and through the uh, through uh, this this four year period between 1968 and 1972, um, a commission called the McGovern Fraser. Uh, uh, commission or it's, it's more official name, uh, the committee, uh, for, uh, the committee on party structure and delegate selection, uh, put forward a number of, of, uh, reforms. Uh, many people were not paying attention. Uh, many people thought, uh, they would be ineffective. Uh, and, but, uh, by the 1972 convention, when they had taken hold, when they had forced state parties to adhere to certain, um, standard rules, uh, standard operating procedures, and uh, imposed the uh, a- the affirmative action guidelines. Uh, we saw an incredible insurgence of uh, women, uh, people of color, young people, anti anti-Viet- anti Vietnam War activists, feminists, uh, civil rights activists, students, I- including fairly dissident or left leaning um, union rank and file members. Uh, surge into the Democratic Party, surge into its uh, governing mechanisms, its governing bodies, and uh, nominate uh, the prominent uh, anti-war uh, senator, uh, uh, George McGovern, for for the presidency. Um, the second bookend, the, the second crisis that bookends this uh, rather contentious period uh, in, in Democratic Party politics is, of course, that McGovern goes on uh, in the 1972 general election to lose every single state, except Massachusetts uh, and Washington D.C. Uh, to Richard Nixon, uh, thus closing uh, or seeming to close at least uh, the uh, the period of uh, of reform uh, of the Democratic Party.
1: You know, it's interesting. Um, you uh, there are a couple of points in in the narrative where You've you've brought in some very good uh, primary source information that really seems to encapsulate the 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 narrative of the sixty eight seventy two period. Or we I guess we could say sixty eight seventy four because you extend it to uh, the aftermath of the election and the rise of the coalition for a democratic majority, the CDM, and these kind of counter reformers. But uh, one is is of the commission you mentioned, the the McGovern Fraser Commission. And they, they seemed to encapsulate exactly what so many of those new reformers, the new politics reformers you mentioned wanted. I mean, if I can quote from, uh, from your chapter on the party turned upside down, and this is uh, from the 72 commission report, uprooting old entrenched customs of the past and replacing them with new and different procedures is not easy. Shifting to open participation by party rank and file members constitutes a virtual political revolution. Including large numbers of women, young people, and minorities in national convention delegations means turning years of tradition around. On that, I'm, I'm with your students in being really amazed at how the mid 20th century Democratic Party operated in comparison with the post 68 and post 72 party. Um, another great moment in that that portion of the book is you mentioned the in the 72 election and the aftermath. This, uh, as you put it, the new class struggle. And a very telling point where the AFL CIO did not uh, did not endorse McGovern. Now, this may have been because George Meany felt disrespected, but but still, uh, and the, our, our labor history listeners will will understand that story. But it seems to me it's quite a harbinger of the party dynamic of the future: uh, a combination of class based and value based polit- values based politics that uh, you know lifelong Democrats would consider tilting toward the Republican Party and. You know, that maybe the Coalition for a Democratic Majority symbolizes some of that. So uh, can, can you talk also a little bit about the, the CDM after 72?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for, for raising that. Um, yeah, it's there's there's I was quite surprised as I was doing this research that um, in the similar way to how the crisis of 1968 opened a window of opportunity, if you will, for the reformers to step forward, to seize the moment um, and to uh, offer a plausible narrative about how the party can reform its way uh, back to power. Uh, The 1972 election uh, did the same for reform skeptics. Um, Those who after 1968 had had in one way or another felt fairly compelled to bite their tongues, um, or to not bother organizing, uh, an act of resistance to the implementation of the McGovern Fraser reforms. Um, however, after 1972 with McGovern's catastrophic landslide loss, um, those, uh, reform skeptics found the rationale, um, that they had been lacking. Uh, prior to uh, or just after 1968, um, and that that coalition that formed what what were what they officially called the Coalition for a Democratic Majority, the CDM, um, that was a fairly diverse group of people, uh, diverse in the sense of it attracted um, uh, policy foreign policy hawks who had been um, who had who had taken. A bit uh taken offense and and bristled at uh George McGovern and and, and the reform movements uh alleged uh, softness on communism right there their, their um, proposal to for an immediate withdrawal uh, from uh, the Vietnam War uh, that was still raging at that time um, uh, there were uh, what we might consider to be um, uh, cultural conservatives, those that bristled at the counterculture of the 1960s and seventies, um, who we would maybe later, uh, label, uh, neoconservatives, um, those who, who, who diagnosed what had gone wrong in the 1960s with the democratic party was, uh, the quote unquote excesses of liberalism, uh, uh, uh the overextension of the welfare state, um, the uh, model cities programs, the great society programs, that these had gone too far uh, in creating uh, uh, dependency of those who were poor, and and that that traditional, uh, more mainstream constituencies were were being neglected. Um, so the CDM, uh, you know, depending, or I should say, notwithstanding the diversity of, of views um, in that in that coalition. Uh, they converged around the idea of resisting the reforms, um, that they could set out just like the reformers had after 1968, the CDM after 72 laid out a, a program, um, to, if you will, reform the reforms (laughs) to roll back the reforms, to bring the party back to, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's new deal past. Um, and, uh, Along these lines, uh, they, they, they promoted, uh, rolling back the, uh, rather, um, stringent, uh, affirmative action guidelines that had been imposed on most of the state parties and national bodies, um, uh, after 1968, they opposed, uh, what were, um, the remaining agenda, what was the re- the, the unfulfilled agenda of the reform movement, um, to establish, uh, Uh, midterm uh, policy conferences that would essentially be like um, presidential nominating conventions, but of course, without nominating anybody. Uh, These would be national events uh, for Democrats to gather together, uh, debate strategy, debate program, whether they're in the majority or the minority. um, uh, Presidents and party leaders may have to account uh, for their um, uh, performance in office, things that you know, if you're familiar with how many parties work in other um, advanced democracies, uh, midterm policy conferences are um, not that unusual. Uh, uh, they also they oppose the reformers' desire to uh, implement a mass-based dues-paying membership. Uh, American parties sort of famously <laughs> have and historically have lacked any kind of true membership. Um, anyone? who identifies as a Democrat, is considered a Democrat, same thing on the Republican side. Um, but nevertheless, they, I mean, the, the, the details can go on, but uh, the CDM was able to mobilize in this moment, um, get themselves on uh, the uh, committees that were undertaking the uh, reform agenda and more or less torpedo most of that unfinished agenda. Um, so many of the McGovern-Fraser reforms um, became codified into the party structure, and the CDM did not uh, enjoy total victory in rolling those back. Um, but they did uh, enjoy some fairly important successes that did, uh, in significant ways, mitigate or modify um, uh, the party structure and and the project that the reformers had initiated uh, after nineteen. Uh, 19-
0: That's shopify.com slash system.
1: So bring us up to speed then with the, the changes of the, the Clinton-Obama era. We have the new Democrats or third-way Democrats of the 1990s who have a mixed record of installing a kind of a durable moderate party agenda. And then Barack Obama in his eight years as president has some successes and failures harnessing the, the advocacy party, to use your your very uh, a very valid term, advocacy party. Talk a bit about that important transition.
2: Yeah, I, I trace in, in my in in the in the post advocacy party period, um, that is the the end of the struggle over uh, between reformers and counter reformers. I trace uh, the the patterns of uh, democratic party governance through three. Um, uh, successive Democratic presidents: Jimmy Carter's one-term uh, uh, and rather unsuccessful uh, uh, bid at uh, Democratic Party leadership; um, the rise of, of Bill Clinton and the New Democrats in the 1990s, and then and then Barack Obama, and all three really have quite different approaches um, to the advocacy party, uh, uh, to to this configuration of a party that has fewer and fewer. Internal resources, uh, what what my colleagues uh, Danny Schlossman and Sam Rosenfeld call a hollow party, party that institutionally has has uh, a limited capacity for electoral mobilization, uh, a, a declining legitimacy in the in the public mind. Um, these these presidents had very different approaches to how they would try to uh, lead and manage structure that, of course, all three of them inherited, um, modified in some important ways, tried to channel or blunt in other ways, um, but all of whom had had little choice over the matter as to take the party as they found it. Um, So to focus in on the Clinton era, because this has received a considerable amount of attention uh, in the scholarly literature, um, your listeners are probably familiar with the Third Way Project. Uh, It wasn't Isolated to the United States, um, but could be seen in uh, across uh liberal and, and social democratic uh, uh countries around the world. Um but Clinton's attempt to carve a third way uh between uh Reagan republicanism on the right and uh you know new politics, New Deal liberalism on the left. Um, had a big impact on the Republican Party and we can point to very durable achievements uh, associated with the new Democrats um, in trying to moderate the image of the Republic excuse me of the Democratic Party by t- by teaming up with the Republican Party to pass welfare reform in 1996 uh, to enact uh, NAFTA uh, in the mid-1990s uh, to to embrace uh, a celebration of free markets and neoliberalism, uh, to declare that the era of big government is over. Uh, These are all pretty memorable things uh, from that period. But in my book, I take a look at the New Democratic Project as a party project, as one where the New Democrats thought they were going to be able to fundamentally challenge and subvert uh, what I call the advocacy party um, configuration or, or order of the democratic party. Uh, that is, they wanted to diminish the dependence on what they considered to be, uh, electoral liabilities like feminism, like civil rights, um, the anti-war movement, uh, many of the, of the legacies of the 1960s and seventies that, that were associated with the Democrats. Uh, um, and I argue in, in this part of the book that this, this challenge to the advocacy party was, was temporarily successful, but not durable. That is, uh, under the Clinton, um, uh, era, uh, they did, uh, successfully bring the party back to, uh, um, to a presidential victory. In fact, uh, the, uh, Bill Clinton was the first to win, uh, reelection as a democratic president, uh, since, uh, FDR. Um, and so it seemed to many at the time that maybe the trouble of the 1960s and seventies, there's the struggle between reformers, counter reformers, um, was in the past was over a new, um, a new party order was being consolidated. Uh, but as I try and show, uh, many of the, many of the initiatives, many of much of the language, uh, that was uh, used Uh, by Clinton and the New Democrats did not hold much longer um, uh, after uh, 2000, after the turn of the millennium, after the New Democrats lost control of the party leadership. Uh, There are still members of Congress who identify themselves as New Democrats. um, But as partisan polarization has deepened, as uh, hostility to a a right-moving Republican Party Uh, has increased among Democratic activists, Uh, a moderate centrism has just uh, not gained the traction that I think many of them thought that it would. Uh, And so uh, I I look instead at the way Barack Obama um, sort of embraced the advocacy party uh, that he inherited after 2008, um, and I label him uh, the advocate in chief, is rather than resisting, rather than trying to uh, impose a, a new party order, uh, on top of the one that he found, uh, in many ways, Barack Obama tried to use it to his advantage. Um, even, uh, establishing his own personal advocacy vehicle that, that sort of vacuumed up all the slogans and chants, and even some of the personnel of, uh, environmentalism, immigrant rights, uh, uh, Less so labor rights, um, but uh, 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 women, the women's advocates, um, uh, and 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 so on, uh, and integrated them right into his brand, if if you will, uh, if you put it that way. And while uh, he continued to, as most Democratic presidents do, uh, underinvest in the organizational capacity of the formal institutions like the Democratic National Committee, uh, or the, uh, state committees, um, uh, in, in all 50 states or even local organizations, uh, Barack Obama was quite successful at, uh, becoming an advocate in chief he even called himself a fierce advocate, uh, on behalf of, uh, these movements and causes, uh, that have, uh, associated themselves uh, with the democratic party, or as sometimes I like to think of it, uh, as, uh, that orbit, uh, the democratic party, uh, uh, as, as if it was some kind of a, you know, planetary object or something.
1: Well, so since we're getting up to the end of our time here, Adam, let's, let's think about in the post Obama era, the time we're in now, the big questions are about, as you mentioned, a partisan polarization, uh, gridlock. Uh, there do not seem to be moderate members of either party now in the same way as there might have been just a few decades ago. So I, I, I want to read for you two quick quotes from your book, and I wonder if we can finish up with the, the bigger ideas of, of where we are today, where the Democratic Party in particular is today. Uh, one is you mentioned at a few points, and I'll, I'll actually quote you here. This is a, a point you raised, it's a very valid one. The party became more open to new voices and identities, but it also facilitated the growth of presidential power, rising inequality and deepening partisan polarization. That's quote one. And then you talk at various points about advocacy groups and their importance to us today. And you say dependence runs both ways. Parties need groups and groups need parties. End quote. Can you uh, can you elaborate on those ideas and, and bring us up to speed with what your study tells us about these these problems we face today? I mean, I know you're not writing a plan for how we get out of our troubles, but, uh, you do have a lot of food for thought for that, uh, this, this quest that we're all on to, to create a better polity. But, uh, can you talk a bit about those ideas in the, the amount of time we have left?
2: Yeah, I I'd be pleased to do so. Um, so the, the, the aggrandizement of the executive, uh, the rise of presidential unilateralism, uh, increasing inequality, deepening partisan polarization, uh, none of these are uh, solely the result of uh, the rise of the advocacy party. Um, Obviously, these are large-scale, polity-wide, and and rather durable trends in American political development, um, all of which are are extremely important and extremely complex uh, and pose major challenges uh, for, for building that better, more inclusive polity. Um, that said, uh, this configuration of the democratic party, um, uh, does very little in terms of posing any kind of countervailing power, um, to most of those trends. Uh, I'll swing back around uh, to the inequality problem in, in just a minute, because I, I have, um, recent developments have, have made me rethink that a little bit, but I'll, I'll return to it in a second. Um social movements and advocacy groups that uh, orient themselves around the Democratic Party um, place their demands on the Democratic Party for recognition, for rights, for policy, um, what some call ideological patronage. Uh, these groups um, uh, collectively uh, have, you know, of course, no direct interest in undermining um, the uh, the fu- the well functioning of a democratic polity, but yet as individuals, um, they know that the political agenda is finite. Um, that uh, we live in an era uh, defined mostly um, by uh, very fleeting moments of unitary uh, or I should say unified party control. Uh, most of the time is is uh, uh, most of the time we uh, live with divided government. And so, when it is the case that the Democrats have unified control, or even just have control of the presidency, these groups are becoming increasingly vocal about um, seeing action now. Uh, that is the uh, the timescale and the logic of social movement activism, um, interest group lobbying, uh, or uh, uh, or uh, advocacy. Um, uh, uh, on, on the behalf of, of those who have historically been, uh, marginalized, overlooked or, or oppressed. Um, those are causes where it's very difficult, uh, to imagine that justice comes later, uh, that justice comes eventually or, uh, where presidents or other party of party leaders counsel patients. And so one of the things we've seen is, uh, to take the Obama era, um, as, uh, as a quite a clear case of this, um, the use of executive action um, to do what the president can to satisfy many of those demands um, being uh, uh, lobbed at them uh, from those groups that the party is dependent on for uh, organizational capacity, electoral viability, popular legitimacy, uh, and so on. Um, Polarization that that increases polarization, even if polarization is one of the main reasons that bipartisan solutions to many of those um, social movement demands uh, 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 are, are not forthcoming. Uh, this also, I think, uh, potentially um, has an effect on who is represented. And here we come to the inequality problem. Uh, as as you quoted from the book, the. The advocacy party has diversified, not just the Democratic Party, but in turn mainstream politics um, in uh, a, a fantastic way that has created a more inclusive, uh, multi-racial democracy uh, since the late 1960s, um, and one that recognizes uh, inclusion along other lines of, of identity, um, uh, including sexuality, gender. Uh, and, and uh, ethnicity, and so on. Um, however, uh, the advocacy universe, if I could put it that way, um, has its own systematic silences within it. Um, perhaps the most problematic in terms of the advocacy party has been the declining weight uh, of uh, labor unions in that ecology, uh, labor unions that that, while historically... Uh, as I demonstrate, especially in my book in the late 1960s, um, uh, had some very problematic positions on building an inclusive um, polity, especially uh, along uh, certain axes uh, and, and identity questions. Um, nevertheless, those groups did have extremely significant clout within uh, the New Deal democratic uh, order. Um, and use that muscle uh, to, uh, to, to negotiate uh, redistributive policies um, that had uh, broad uh, downward effects on um, those with uh, low incomes, those who are resource poor, uh, and so on. Um, advocacy and social movement mobilization, while those are things that can and do uh, mobilize people with, with less resources, um, people with uh, a modicum of resources or abundant resources have an enormous um, advantage in making their voice louder, um, in uh, in impressing their demands onto uh, the democratic platform. And that has, for the most part, been a good thing uh, in terms of that diversification that I was speaking of. But the advocacy universe is not itself representative of everybody uh, in the American polity. And it's a concern of mine, uh, and I know many people share this concern, that as unions have been declining in their uh, clout in the in the private economy, uh, the Democrats have, have not acted uh, uh, in a proactive way to uh, try to rebuild unions' capacity to be an active political player within that coalition. That said, uh, as I finished this book, um, or I, since I finished this book, Joe Biden has, uh, Joe Biden defeated Bernie Sanders uh, for the uh, Democratic nomination in 2020, and yet has uh, initiated the, mo- the boldest, most ambitious uh, social uh, and environmental Um, policy agenda uh, that anyone has seen since the 1960s. And many people were very surprised by this, myself included. Um, But when I step back and I think about this, uh, I think one of the ways this book speaks to that present moment is uh, in two ways. One, Joe Biden seems to understand that he's inherited the advocacy party in the way that Barack Obama understood it. Um, now, Joe Biden, in many ways, is very different from Barack Obama and and I think cannot play the same role that he did. But nevertheless, he seems to have uh, put a lot of priority. He seems to have prioritized going big, going bold on an agenda uh, that pleases some of the most vocal uh, advocates uh, in the Democratic coalition. On the other hand, that coalition does seem to be broadly redistributive despite the fact that the unions have continued to suffer um, major decline uh, in the private economy and in the polity uh, as a group of political actors. And where I think that comes from, and there more and more research is needed on this, but that as advocates are drawn together into a partisan coalition, as union members, uh, those that still exist establish LGBTQ caucuses within their union locals uh, as, uh, as civil rights organizations create linkages uh, and advocate on the behalf of uh, raising minimum wage laws or uh, protecting um, public sector unions. Uh, there's, a, I think, a, a, an aggregate or integrative effect of these distinct groups around a broadly redistributive program. Um, I think the days of the democratic party being quote unquote, just a coalition of single interest groups, uh, might actually be overlooking the coalitional effect, the partisan effect, um, that occurs across these different groups. So notwithstanding the, uh, the very serious and, and regrettable decline in, uh, um, the trade unions, uh, within the democratic coalition, uh, it seems like those that have increasing legitimacy, increasing clout, um, along, uh, other sectors of the advocacy universe may themselves be taking up the banner, um, for a broadly redistributive program. Um, and so that's, uh, to me that, that, that is, we can understand that within the framework Of contentious institutions and uh, the advocacy party order and uh, I hope maybe suggest that uh, my concern about reproducing uh, systematic inequalities um, may have been uh, premature.
1: Well Adam that was a great answer to a very complicated question and I I appreciate you updating us and uh, bringing us up to the the period after you turned your manuscript in. Uh, there's so much more to talk about, but in the interest of time, we should we should call it there. Uh, Adam Hilton has been great. The title of the book is True Blues: The Contentious Transformation of the Democratic Party, available from the University of Pennsylvania Press, published in the year 2021. Adam Hilton, thanks so much for joining us.
2: Thank you so much, Joe. It's my pleasure.
1: Take care.